Welcome to the Turkey Hunter Podcast, the original all-turkey, all-the-time podcast with your co-hosts Andy Galliano and Cameron Weddington. In our weekly podcast, we're going to bring you some wild turkey calling tips like this. From there, we're going to go into, she's aggravated, there's another hen that's challenged her, or she's challenging another hen, she's going to cut an excited yelp. Advice from old pro turkey hunters like this. The turkeys typically don't like, I think, more times than not, to travel in an easterly direction into the sun first thing in the morning, especially after he gets up. It's a blinding thing. It, it, it's just like you. It's hard for you to see into the sun. Mm-hmm. So if I have a choice, I'm going to try to make it so that I'm going to be on the west side in the morning east side in the afternoon of a turkey exciting live hunts like this holy crap they're coming teach you how to cook your bird with advice such as this with some fresh rosemary and garlic and then cool that off and spread that along the inside of that butterflied turkey breast that we've seasoned on both sides wildlife management tips for your property especially with turkeys like this if you look at the type of habitats that turkeys need for nesting and brooding that tends to be habitat that can be managed more successfully with growing season fire than with dormant season fire. And hopefully along the way, we'll get plenty of these. Well, on November the 28th of 1953, I was attached. When I popped out of my mom and the baby doctor spanked me on the bottom, I went, oh, and I've been doing it ever since. <laughs> I like that. Thank you for tuning in, and now, for this week's show. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. You are listening to episode number 314, the Mark Prudham Seminar from the 2020 Unicoi Turkey Callmaker Show, and I am your co-host and the guy who is ready to get this behind us. And I'm your co-host and the guy who is enjoying a wood-burning fire with this nice cold front. You teased me. Well, I'm sick of hearing about it. Oh my god. This is this is like a this is a big, big, huge football game coming up, but it's in politics. It's like the national championship of college football that the two teams have been decided for six months and all the sports writers and commentators and sports shows on the radio and on the internet and on the TV, all they can talk about is that showdown. The showdown is here. Well, by the time the listeners hear this, we'll probably have some clarity, but... Probably not. Yeah, could be. We'll see. I'm, I'm holding to 
the fact that it's going to be an absolute blowout game, even though the commentators believe it's going to be a close match. Well, if you're right and I can go to bed early tomorrow night, that would be good. Yeah, well, we'll see. It's definitely one of the more interesting votes we've had in history, I would say. There could not be a more divided time in the country, I think, other than maybe the Civil War and and ideals and how people feel. (laughs) Well, and you got to wonder, is this the end of the divisiveness or is this part A in a multifaceted, very complex story that we have about to take place? Well, there's no telling what's going to happen. Hopefully the country unites, but in 152 days... Y'all will, won't see me anyway, so I'll be out with the turkeys. <laughs> In 135 days, 10 hours, 12 minutes, and 5 seconds, you won't be able to see me in the state of Alabama. Yeah, I, I think politics are very important, but I have priorities that go above politics in my life, and so I'm going to vote the way that I think is going to further my hobbies and beliefs, but at the end of the day... I'm going turkey hunting. <laughs> Speaking of that, you are going turkey hunting. And probably sooner than many people listening to the show will be going turkey hunting. And the guy telling me about this will also be going turkey hunting. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah, we're going to go whack us a couple winter goblas. It's going to be interesting. I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm not even nervous or you know, concerned about it. Maybe it's because I've already killed in Utah, but I'm looking forward to the trip. I think it's going to be a blast. Yeah, I think the good thing about it is worst case scenario, I'm getting to hang out with you. And without the NWTF convention this year, that was going to be at a premium anyway. Yeah. So worst case scenario, we're going to get to spend some time together, but I'll still get the nervousness and jitters for the both of us, I guess, this time on the turkey hunting part of it. But it's going to be a blast of a trip anyway. It could not be a bad time is all I'm thinking. Can't be a bad time. We're going to be in a beautiful, beautiful part of the country. And from all of the intel that I'm getting on the area that we're going, it's covered up with turkeys so they say you know i've i've heard that song before and showed up and not seen all the turkeys they speak of but i i think this time it's gonna be legit yeah it, it seems like they ought to be there we'll we'll see but i'm holding to the fact that they're gonna be there <laughs> yeah it's gonna be fun i'm it's, i'm really looking forward to the trip yeah so hopefully we'll have some winter audio for you guys it may sound very shivery and teeth chattery because it's going to be cold in february in utah but (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's going to be fun i'm I'm hoping maybe we'll get a warm spell and they'll be give us some mercy on the on the weather but i can't wait to get after them i know that much it's gonna be a fun kickoff to the spring almost for us i may bring a long sleeve shirt and some some boots instead of just sandals yeah i was just just gonna wear my vest (laughs) that's it (laughs) <laughs> no cushion <laughs> the cushion yeah of course <laughs> but the, the vest has the cushion attached so i'll just kind of flip that down that was my whole goal so even though cameron and i are going on this trip together he will be hunting by himself on this trip <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to be seen with me 
Uh, well, you're going to a very religious state. That's just the way I'm, I'll just leave it like that. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Well, I tell you, I've listened, you know, I didn't go to Unicoi with you last year, but I've listened to part of this interview that we're about to play for everybody, and this is awesome. I, I think folks are going to really enjoy this one. There's a lot of info in this seminar. And, you know, Mark Prudham, we've never had him on the show directly. This will be the first time that we've had really anything to do with Mark on the show. And, you know, he's somebody we need to track down and get on the show for a real live, sure enough interview. But mm -hmm. the information that you guys are about to get from this seminar is top notch. I mean, this is good, good stuff. And just listening to him, you know, he's... He's very calm in giving the seminar, you know, sharing stories and sharing the information. But he got me amped up and ready to go. Yeah, I bet. I mean, I heard this guy play a trumpet call at the NWTF convention. Oh, that's ridiculous. That, it may be one of the most turkey sounds I've ever heard in my life come from human vocals. It's absolutely ridiculous it, it really is like i i get it everybody's obsessed with some of these people who are diaphragm callers but this dude on a trumpet call is he's, so absurd on turkey sounds he sounds as much like somebody running a diaphragm or a natural voice caller i mean a good natural voice caller he sounds as much like that on a trumpet as anybody i've heard it's unbelievable yeah i would i would be willing to wager if you put a guy with a box call slate call diaphragm call mark prudhomme with a trumpet call and a real hen turkey in the woods i bet him and the hen would sound the most similar in the woods in a natural setting because it's something you haven't heard before yeah i can tell when it's a hunter 99.9 percent .9 of the time on any other call and i usually know what type of call they're calling to me on you know mm-hmm yeah. Like, all right, that guy's using either aluminum or, or glass, you know, pot and peg. I can tell that sound. But Prudhomme on his trumpet is, if I was in the woods, I'd be like, all right, I'm calling to a hint. No doubt. Mm -hmm. it, it's crazy. Yeah. Uh, if you haven't heard him on it, you need to look up a YouTube video or something. It, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it is. There's no doubt about it. Well, let's get in and listen to the seminar, and what do you say we play this thing and catch everybody on the other side? Yep, we'll see you guys on the other side. Listen up. All right. All right, I guess I'll go ahead and get started. Um, Mark asked me to do a, a little seminar. Um, he didn't really tell me what to do it on or nothing, but I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk pretty much about trumpets. I mean, that's my thing. I, of course, have run all different kinds of calls, um, but trumpets are kind of a thing. I know there's it, a lot of what I'm going to talk about pertains to turkey hunting in general, but um, primarily, you know, that's, I'm going to do some trumpet stuff. But um, some of you might not know me or anything, um, so I'll just kind of give you a little background. I've uh, been turkey hunting since we had turkeys. Um, I, I remember when I saw my very first turkey, I was just a little fella, and uh, he got up and flew, and I had no idea that turkeys could even fly. 
I was with my dad and we were squirrel hunting. I was just, I don't know, maybe six, seven years old. But, but right then, I was, I was intrigued by it. I mean, you know, I saw a turkey and it was, it was different. It was like, I'd never seen one before. He flew and, and from that point, I kind of had turkeys in the back of my mind, even though um, we kind of moved around a little bit. My father worked for International Paper, so um, we moved to Georgetown, South Carolina, and uh, we didn't have any turkeys. Now, there was a turkey or two. I remember a, a man killing one on Thanksgiving Day. We were dog driving, and the turkey stepped out, and he shot it with buckshot, and you know that was that was kind of the thing, you know. And then everybody was mad because that's the only turkey that was in the county. <laughs> so you know, if you if you saw a track, everybody get all excited, you know. Um, we slowly, um, I manage a plantation uh, about 3,000 acres, and we were we were fortunate enough to be part of the very first restocking the NWTF and. South Carolina State did in my area. Um, I started off, um, I had heard some older people talking about turkey hunting and it fascinated me and it just so happened, you know, with my situation, it's kind of a long story but I've kind of, I'm a kind of a historian. Georgetown is a very historic place as far as turkey hunting. Um, it was the home of Thomas Samworth, who wrote, he was a book publisher. He worked for the National Rifle Association for years, and he started publishing books, mostly on gunsmithing. Well, Samworth was from Plantersville, which is just a little small farming community outside of Georgetown and on the PD River. And Samworth owned a plantation uh, and published books. And he published, he, he, Archibald Rutledge is from there also, right across the Santee River. A lot of you might not have heard Archibald Rutledge was a, a writer and poet, but wrote a lot of stories about turkey hunting and, and deer hunting and stuff, but turkey primarily. He had a call named Miss Seduction. Um, very rare, you can, some people may have never seen one. Um, but he asked Archibald Rutledge to write a book about turkey hunting because at the time there was very few, if any, um, I think Turpin had written a book and um, McElhenney, you know, who, who wrote Jordan's, actually Jordan wrote the book, McElhenney published it after his death. And um, so Samworth wanted a book about that. Um, he contacted Rutledge. Rutledge gave him a book and it wasn't anything what he wanted. He said, this isn't what I want. This is a bunch of, you know, stories. Um, he said, I want a How to Turkey Hunt book from the start to finish. So there was a lawyer out of Florence, South Carolina uh, named Henry Davis. Henry Davis, and I know I'm, I'm probably telling y'all stay. I want to hear about killing turkeys, but just giving you a little background. But Henry Davis wrote this book, probably one of the greatest books has ever been written on the wild turkey, the American wild turkey. Sam Worth published it. Davis hunted in Georgetown. Rutledge hunted in Georgetown and the Francis Marion National Forest as well as Davis. Davis says, and I know this isn't 100% accurate, but Davis says that the truest strain of American wild turkey was in the Francis Marion National Forest in the 30s and 40s. There weren't any, many turkeys anywhere else. 
but that little pocket and it's just so remote and so swampy and water everywhere that that they were able to survive in that area well um, when I was a kid uh, a friend of mine was a game warden and he he knew Sam Worth personally he knew you know all the stories and everything and and I would listen to all this stuff and it, it fascinated me I never got to meet Mr. Sam Worth he died um, kind of before I really knew what was going on but um, a lot of people in my area knew him and talked about him and, and that kind of thing. So I started, I got real interested in it and I started reading uh, Davis's, you know, they came out with a reprint of the book and I read everything I could get my hands on and talked to some of the old timers who, who um, you know, knew him and, and knew Sam Worth and that kind of thing. So I went to college and just so happened my advisor was the head of the library. And the librarian asked me, he said, you're from Georgetown. I said, yeah. He said, you ever heard of Thomas Samworth? And I said, absolutely. I, I know all about him. And he, um, I said, he published one of the best books I've ever seen, The American Wild Turkey. And uh, I said, do you have one? And he said, you want to see it? And I said, I would love to. He had an original copy signed by Thomas Samworth, and they had donated it to the library, and they kept it in a climate-controlled room. And he said, anytime you want to look at it, you let me know. Well, I spent my first year in college in, in the American Wild Turkey book instead of school books. So I read and looked at everything. Well, we didn't have a season in my county, so I had to go to Charleston and I hunted in the Francis Marion Forest. And I stumbled around and I, you know, I, I, I read the book and I talked to old timers and my dad hadn't ever killed with a turkey or two in his life and he wasn't an expert. So I took all this stuff in and I listened to what they had to say and, and, and stumbled through the Francis Marion National Forest, got my feet wet and uh, lost and everything else and I finally started killing turkeys. And um, I'm pretty proud that I got in there and hunted in probably one of the most pristine places that there was at the time. Plus, it was one of the toughest places because of a lot of pressures, public. Um, most of the the old timers in there, you know, they they wouldn't tell you anything. They wouldn't share where they hunted. They wouldn't tell you anything. So I finally figured out. I made friends with a a biologist who was the state biologist, Dave Bauman. He wouldn't tell me a whole lot, but he told me. He said, he said, go to the water. So I, everywhere there was water, I'd go and I'd end up killing turkeys and and um, got pretty good at killing turkeys and calling turkeys. And somebody says, hey, they're having a contest in Columbia you ought to go get in it and I said well shoot I didn't kill a truckload of turkeys I, I'll go up there and win that thing and I went to Columbia and it just so happened I didn't realize it was not only the South Carolina State but it was the, the world friction contest well I get there there's Walter Parrott, Matt Moret, Chris Parrish I mean everybody you can think of in the world of turkey calling at that time and I started getting a little nervous. I said, oh, I don't know about this. So I got on stage and I probably got, had the lowest score of anybody in the history of the contest. And I was, I, I had to be dead last. I didn't check the scores, I just left. I said, well, I didn't win nothing. But I was determined, I said, you know, I, I, I thought I was, I thought I knew more about this. I'm, I'm, I mean, I've killed a lot of turkeys, but I didn't really, 
study the language. So I took a little time off, probably probably two years, and I, I studied turkey language and listened and practiced and worked and got to where, you know, I was finding the right call for me and that kind of thing, mostly diaphragm calls. And um, I came back, and I ended up that, like maybe two years later, I ended up sixth. And I said, well, I'm making some progress. So every year I kept going back. It was the only contest I would call in was the South Carolina State, which just so happened uh, the guy that had won the world in 1981 competed in every year. I mean, I was competing against the best in the, in the nation right there in South Carolina. So I ended up getting better and better, and I finally won it. I said, well, I've, you know, I'm, my dream has come true. I won the South Carolina State. And then somebody says, we ought to go to the to the Grand American in Georgia. So I said, well, okay. I went down there and everybody said, man, I mean, Preston Pittman was there, um, every, Steve Stoltz, everybody that was anybody there again. And I ended up fifth. And I said, man, I, I might be on to something. So I started competing more and more and I got more into it and, and uh, kind of make a long story short, um, I kind of got obsessed with the language of the wild turkey. Now, there are turkey callers, there's competition callers that I'm sure haven't killed five turkeys in their life. And there's hunters who would never win a competition that have killed many turkeys in their life. I, I've always thought that combining the two, if, if a good woodsman with good calling would be the perfect combination. So that's kind of what my, my goal was. So I was hoping that I could get better and better and ended up um, doing pretty well. I ended up winning. Um, I, I'd get real nervous. When I'd go to the Grand Nationals, there was 2,000 people in the audience. I'd get so nervous. Uh, I saw everybody was drinking water. And I was like, well, I'm going to take me some water up there because my mouth would get dry. I got up there and took a cup of water, which was a big mistake. I took a cup of water and I set it down there and I made my first call. And I mean, I looked out there and there was, I'm telling you, there's 2,000 people, TV cameras, all this stuff. I said, well, I got to get some water. I went over there and I picked that cup up and I couldn't drink it and I couldn't set it down. I was like, I mean, it was, it was bad. So I finally, finally got it set down and I, I finished my calls and I ended up, I made the cut and I ended up in the, I think maybe the top 10, which was, you know, I couldn't believe. So I kept going back and I finally ended up winning um, in, um, two-man, Al Hooten, uh, everything. I finally ended up winning 17 Grand National Championships, um, eight World Championships, including Goblin, Al Hooten, and, um, and then I, I, I won, and I kind of, I'm diversified. I'm a big duck hunter. I've, I've blown in the World Duck Calling Contest, um, won elk calling contests, all this stuff. I'm kind of obsessed with animal sounds. My wife says I'm crazy, but that, that's, that's who I am. And um, a, a, few, a few years went by and um, I was using a diaphragm call. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't see any reason to use any other call because it, it had been working for me. And, um, but I mean, you know, like everybody, I had turkeys hanging up on me. I had turkeys that would gobble and wouldn't come. And, um, so I started running different kinds of calls when my buddy Kerry Terrell said, you need a trumpet call. He said, you'd be surprised, a trumpet call, it, it, it's unbelievable what, how turkeys respond to it. 
so I did and uh, there again I started from scratch I, I was terrible I couldn't run it and um, I said well I ain't gonna let it whip me I kept fooling with it kept fooling with it and uh, and really until I started making my own trumpets where I could kind of control the way I call and the way I call is a little bit different I met Mr. Zach Farmer um, and 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 he he gave me a lot of tips and and uh, we became friends and got to hunt with him and killed turkey and and um, that was pretty pretty neat the way to watch him and listen to him call so I, I did my best to try to learn the way he called and and he he helped me with that and uh, so I started making my own trumpets and and um, that's where I'm at today. Um, the the main thing I guess about a trumpet that to me is the realism uh, I'm really big on realism I mean you can sound kinda like a turkey and kill a turkey but I, I want to try to sound exactly like a turkey as, as well as everybody should it doesn't matter what kind of call um, realism is the key if you can if you can make a turkey believe that you're another turkey then I think that that is probably the the most important thing and the only way you're gonna to get to that point is listening to real wild turkeys you can hear me call you can listen to me talk or anybody you can go in that exhibit hall and hear 500 calls at one time but until you hear real wild turkeys and you really study and say not only and I learned my friend Denny Golvis helped me a lot with this he's like what is the turkey saying what is he is they're communicating when they talk so what is what what is the conversation it's between two turkeys or it's one turkey calling to another turkey they're saying something he said you need to learn what they're saying why they're saying it and take it from there so I really started recording a lot of real wild turkeys and listening and and um, there again, I think it stepped me up a, a whole lot more because I feel like now that I'm not just calling a turkey, I'm, I'm in a conversation with that turkey and I'm trying to tell that turkey or, you know, communicate. So when, when you're communicating with, with a wild animal and you're trying to make them think that you're a wild animal, then, you know, it, it's so important to sound as real as you can. Now, I understand that there are, you know, so many different variations. I've heard hens that sound terrible. I've heard hens that are clear. I've heard hens that are raspy. I've heard hens that, that might do two notes. They might do 30 notes. Some of that is what they're trying to say. Other parts of that are, are just as varied as we are. Some people have a deep voice, some people don't. Um, young turkeys may have a higher pitched voice. You know, older, you know, gobblers sound different than jakes, and jakes are different than hens. So learning the differences and learning to communicate makes all the difference. Um, listening to wild turkeys. Um, and un trying to break down and, and watching them as well you know when you when you see and hear at the same time you see other turkeys respond to this turkey that might be calling it gives you a whole nother perspective and a lot of that um, to be honest with you doesn't come from hunting because how many times I know everybody that's 
been turkey hunting very long has probably got out of your truck, walked, sat down, maybe just tree call, turkey fly down, you kill him, you, you know, go get him, you go to Waffle House and you go home, you know what I mean? You, you really didn't, I'm not saying you didn't learn anything, but I mean sometimes it can happen quick, sometimes it takes you all day, but if you go when you're not hunting, when you're no anticipation of shooting a bird or anything like that, and you just go and, and be a part, and you know, not dominate the woods, not be the loudest one in the woods, but go out there and just sit down, if nothing else, watch this turkey calling, watch this turkey react to it, see what they do. They come together, do they fight, do they go along and go the same direction. There's so many different variables and so many things that turkeys do. Um, one thing that I believe in, too, is sounding like more than one turkey. Now, I know it's, it's sometimes hard with a call of any kind to, to do one turkey and be accurate and be, you know, okay, I got it. And you're one turkey. Well, learning how to sound like multiple turkeys is so much more effective. And think about this. Um, you got decoys. A lot of people use decoys now. Um, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. I, I prefer not to use them, but I, I'm not going to say that I don't use them. They're very effective, but you put you put a couple decoys out there. You put a Jake decoy. You put a hen. You put a strutter out there. Well, why would you not want to sound like each one of those? You're given a visual of of three different turkeys right there. Well, suppose you're in a thick place. Wouldn't you want to sound like three if they can't see your decoys? and you got a hen and a jake. Well, what you're doing is you're playing on the jealousy factor. You expect that turkey to come out there and see that hen and hear that hen and see that jake and say, oh no, he's in my territory and come running up there to fight and that's when you shoot him. Well, suppose you can't get a decoy out, you're in a field. Suppose you get there and it's thick, he's in a thicket and you can't see him, you need to get him out. You need a way to portray that same situation without the visual. And that's where sounding like maybe two different hens, sounding like uh, a, a hen flying down, um, one on the ground, one in the tree still, um, a jake, different things. I, ha I can't tell you how many times people, I gobble at turkeys do it all the time. It's, it works for me. Now I don't recommend that on public land and and all that kind of stuff. You have to be real careful but hunting on private land um, gobbling has been very effective and people say well you know why would you gobble at one? Well why would you put a strutting decoy out? It's no different. If you got a strutting decoy out there you're expecting that gobbler to come to a gobbler. If he can't see, why would you not want to gobble and do, you're doing the same thing? You're just giving him the audio, not the visual. So that's some things that I try to do to, to keep in mind. I'm going to paint a picture. When, you know, when I was calling for judges, I want to paint a picture for that judge. And I want him to say, you know, okay, I understand what he's doing. That, that's, that's a hen turkey and she's lost. Okay. 
Well, yeah, I want to do the same thing to a gobbler. Or if I'm fall hunting, a hen or, or a jake or whatever you want to shoot. Whatever's legal, you know, where you hunt. So I think it's important to learn, no matter what kind of call you're using, learn how to do different turkeys on different types of calls. Some days a trumpet may work, some days it might not. You may need to get a tube call out and gobble on it. You may get a box call. I've, I've killed turkeys with a box call that I probably wouldn't have killed anything else. It's just that's, that day that's what triggered them. And I think sometimes there may be a hen in that area that he's heard before that you sound like. And you know that's just part of it. Um, I usually carry a box call um, and a trumpet call. Mostly, I, I try to get by with just those two, but you can always pack a diaphragm call in there. It doesn't take up any room. Um, but I'm gonna give you, just give you an example, and I'm not gonna stand up here and do a bunch of calling and you know all this kind of stuff. I'm uh, and, and I'm, I'm going to ask y'all, you know, if you want, got any questions, I'd love to try to answer them. But um, give you an example. Um, early morning with, uh, uh, you got a gobbler goblin, and you want to try to convince him that you're two hens and a jake. And I won't do the jake, maybe, if he responds real well to the hen, then so be it. I'm, I'm, I may not do anything. I, I never call to a bird that's coming to me anyway. You can't do nothing but lose in that situation. If he's coming, there's no need to call. But if I feel like I need to give him a little something extra, if I need to convince him a little more, I may do another hen. I, uh, I may do a clear hen, a raspy hen, uh, one hen in the tree, and one that flies down and one still in the tree, that kind of thing. So this is our early morning situation with a little tree calling, uh, a fly down, and then a hen on the ground, and um, maybe a jake. So we'll see if we can get it running.
you kind of kind of see what I'm talking about? Sound like maybe two hens, one's in the tree, one flies down, Jake's on the ground. That kind of lets them know, hey, there's a party going over here. I need to come check it out. You got a hen, uh, a Jake, who he don't want to tolerate in his area, and he's coming. He's coming to investigate all that. Doesn't always work, but sometimes it's a little bit more convincing than just sitting there and doing one hen or one type of calling. Um, Sometimes um, you may have to get a little inventive. You may have to gobble. You may have to do different things. Sounding like a flock to me is a whole lot better than just you know sounding like one turkey. Now we've all sounded like one hen, run a box or one call, and the turkey came in, and you know we were successful. But that's just a little something to just kind of throw in your bag of tricks. Just something to kind of keep in mind if you're going to put out, you know three or four decoys and you need to try to sound like three or four different turkeys in that situation. Um, anybody got any questions or anything that you, you'd like to know or I mean I, I'll try to help you now I'll tell you this I've killed a turkey or two but um, there's people in this room that's killed probably more turkeys than me and better caller than me and everything else I think we can all learn something from everybody so um, what do you I, gobble with? I gobble with a diaphragm first, or a second, I'd use a tube call. Now, diaphragm's hard to learn. Tube call's relatively easy to, to gobble on. Um, it's not hard to learn, but um, the, it's got a lot of realism. Um, I've I, I got an old call that I made that I'll gobble on. Um, it, you know, it doesn't always work. And I don't think you really have to sound exact because you you know a broken gobble kind of sounds like a young bird and if you you know if you can't put it together and sound like an old bird it, it works just as good yep anybody got any other questions on your uh, tube call how are you how are you controlling the pressure um the volume is that with your hand is it with the amount that you're uh, on the call or on, on a on a trumpet, you talking about? Trumpet, yeah. yeah. Well, there's a couple different things. Um, I think one of the, the most important thing with any wind type instrument, uh, a wing bone or a trumpet, is you have to learn, you know, how much is enough. And and when you first start off, a lot of times you tend to suck too hard and get too loud. Honestly, it's harder to learn to call soft. So the softer you call sometimes takes more work. But I do believe that once you get your, your air control and you can call soft, then you can be more realistic when you're louder. You know, a lot of, a lot of beginners will get on a call and they'll kind of... Now you'll kill turkeys doing that. I'm not saying you won't. But you know, you, you don't wanna there's some turkeys that may may offend, so to speak. You don't wanna you wanna you wanna try to be soft to start with. You can always get loud. It's kinda like if I went up to him and started talking easy, you know, if I was mad or he made me mad, I can I can always get loud. 
and you know it can escalate but if I go straight up to him and I'm loud right off the bat I can't go back soft you see what I'm saying I mean it's on he's probably going to punch me so it's kind of like that with turkeys I'm not saying that turkeys don't settle down you know and, and start getting soft they, they get excited they get loud sometimes especially if they're calling to other birds like a, a, a bird that got separated the night before maybe a little bit anxious to get back with the flock and may fly down and really start hitting it pretty hard but I always like to try to start soft and if I need to I start escalating a little bit and I'm not against I probably more than most people like to get loud and aggressive um, sometimes that's all it works and you know throw a bunch of cutting in there and just kind of Now if he starts gobbling that and he gets real excited, you know, and he's been hung up, sometimes he can't stand it and he'll come on in. If not, sometimes that, that will intimidate a hen and she's like, oh, and she'll, she'll actually take him away. You kind of need to know what you're dealing with. If you're dealing with a gobbler with hens, sometimes you don't want to really make her mad unless you have to. Now, if, if I see them or hear that they're going away anyway, I got nothing to lose. I'll get aggressive. I've, I've had time where I've made that hen so mad that she comes in there and of course he follows her. So either way, you get him so excited that he's like, I'm going to her because she's just sitting here clucking and purring. Or either you get her mad and she actually comes to you. Um, I've called other hens to me many times and it, it can't do anything but help you as long as they don't see you, you know. So that's my recommendation. And the, the, your, your question about the, the air control. Um, there's several ways to do it. One is, is just with your draw. I, I call with my throat more than anything, I guess. But you can control some of it with your hand as well. The more back pressure you have, the, then the, the, it, it just creates, I don't know, kind of like a vacuum. And it, it, it helps you call softer and it, you can kind of control. It's just like playing an instrument. It is an instrument. You, you have to, you know, I can't pick up a... a uh, banjo and take off on it you know I have to start and learn the notes and learn how to control it and everything it's no different you you kind of have to feel your way through it um, the best way to do that is to just make as many different sounds as you can just start making a bunch of sounds figuring out what causes that sound what did I just do to make this sound happen and and then try to repeat it you know like okay well and then you get to where it's automatic you can you can you know I can cluck two different turkeys clucking for example I can change nothing but my hands and try to sound like I don't know a hen and a gobbler clucking like See the difference? All I did really was change my hands. I, I, I'm bringing that sound out and then back towards me. Your body kind of absorbs it and it kind of, kind of, all that. A trumpet call is directional as well. So if I change, um, and, and some of y'all ain't going to be able to tell, some of you might, but.
you might hear the sound actually sounds like it's coming from a different direction. Now, in a, in a room, not so much. In the woods where it's open, you can actually throw that sound. And I have, I've had, I'm right-handed, and I've had turkeys that would be coming to my right, and I'm in a bind, and, you know, I, I throw the sound this way, and I actually make them turn. Or if I'm guiding, and I've got a hunter that... You know, he's set up and the, the bird comes from a direction we didn't intend to. I can, I've, I've done it many times, kind of make that bird go where I want him to go. Doesn't always work. Sometimes they, they just cautious and they want to come the way they want to come. But that's one good thing I like about a trumpet or, or wing bone is um, you can definitely change the sound. And hey, I have too had a gobbler hung up. And I'll call straight away on purpose, just straight as I can to him. And then, you know, I'm talking about you got a little distance. You turn around, and no more than turn around, call again, and it sounds like you're going away. Makes that hen sound like she's leaving, and he'll turn around, and he's like, oh, and he'll turn around and come, you know, to follow her. And I, that, that's something that works too. And that's, it's not many calls that you can do that with. Most calls, a pot call, a box call, the sound comes off. It, it, if you throw a rock in the water, you see just rings. And they're perfectly symmetrical, the rings. Sound does the same thing. When, when sound comes off of a pot or a box, it pretty much goes straight out like that. A trumpet works kind of like a megaphone you know when you want to get somebody's attention way off you you cup your hands or you know you got a cone or something well you're directing those waves in a direction so it's more that you can control it now you gonna obviously you can hear it from all sides but the majority of those sound waves are being projected in a direction so that's what makes a uh, trumpet or a wing bone kind of unique as well. So, anybody else got anything? Specific to that scenario that you just described, where you're able to elevate the interactions across the flock by enticing them and obviously engaging with them more commonly and in a more exciting fashion. Yeah. What happens when you come across those early season flocks? That turkey's only going to gobble a couple times on the tree, flies down with the same five hens, ten hens he's flown down with the last two weeks. Yeah. You can't pick them up. What's your approach in, you know, that low country, especially as you've seen those flock dynamics change from less hens to now more hens, and you've seen those gobblers change their degrees of interaction with gobbling as well. Yeah. How do you approach those scenarios? Well, I think the main thing, there's some, some situations that you just absolutely can't do anything about, and South Carolina, to be honest with you, our season comes in too early. Our hens are grouped up, the gobblers are henned up, um, not a lot's going on, they're just in big wads and there's not, it's hard to call a gobbler away from a flock of hens because he's got everything he needs and they're walking away and he's looking at them and they just following along. In that situation, really the main thing is scouting and knowing where they want to go. I want to be where they want to be. Um, hopefully I know the direction they're going to go. And most of the times in that time of year, early season, they're going to gather up and they're not just going to go across the country. They're going to hang out right there for a while. And then they're going to, maybe a few hens will start splitting off. Um, 
and if you can, if you're fortunate enough to be able to get on that property and watch that situation and, and say, um, you know, I'm, I'm real lucky in that I, I can, I get to see that a lot. And I see birds that in the morning they fly down and they're, they're grouped up right here. And at 8.30 or so, I look and they, I, you know, I may be going by later and I see the same group three or four hundred yards you know down a road in a food plot or something so if I was going to hunt those birds I'd say hey I need to be between them and the food plot that puts me in a direct path to where they want to go to start with and then I'm going to try to just ease them into my general direction you're already in the path just try to narrow that down not not knowing where they're going to go honestly puts you at a big disadvantage and um, I'm not saying you can call them away. I've done it, but it's pretty rare. Um, knowing your land, knowing where they want to go, and knowing your birds is key in that. And hey, I have, you know, I, I guided for many, many years, and shoot, I've been. People's called me and say, "Hey, I got this bird. I can't do nothing with." I end up getting there in the dark. I've never been on the property before. And, and you're at a big disadvantage because then they fly down and you're like, what's over there? And he's, well, it's a creek. Well, they flew down across the creek and you can't, you're not going to call them back because they, you know, they know where they want to go. Um, so that's really the only thing you can do in that situation is just know your birds. You, you were saying? Yeah, uh, you said that you use your throat. Do you do, you do that? by tightness or do you use words or I don't use words um, and and to be honest with you it's very hard to describe um, I'm pulling air with the back of my throat um, and it's, it's kind of like um, I'm not really using my diaphragm because you can kind of um, you can go kind of overboard with that, but I am, I'm, I'm drawing that air from the back of my throat, and I'm using my throat to control the the air coming, you know, coming in. And I, I, I really, it's, it's honestly hard to describe. And I, I try to keep my lip movement to a, a minimum. Like, like when you first start, um, you know, a lot of people first take up a trumpet, they they want to do all lip. And you can do that. It's just kind of tightening and loosening my lip. Well, if I kind of keep my lips more, a little more stationary, and draw that with my with my throat, and you can call clear the same with the same method you just change a little bit but it's, it's kind of coming from from up in here in this area and just kind of pulling that air and learning that draw is the the key to it yes 
So Mark, would you start with just like a cluck and learn to do the draw? I mean, is that a good I, I think I think so. You know, a lot of people take a, a, a cluck and turn it into a yelp, and that's kind of where the lip stuff. I, and I do kind of pop my lips on a cluck a little bit, just kind of. I'm still pulling in here quickly, and then I'm but I'm using my lips to seal and release, seal and release. You see what I'm saying? It's kind of like that. You can kind of turn that into a yelp somewhat. kind of transition that that kind of can help you get started getting your air and learn that draw um, but I mean it's really hard to describe it's just one of those things that you gotta you have to feel it and you just got to play with it I'm, I mean I'm gonna be honest with you I, I run a trumpet almost every day and and building calls has helped me because I build one and I run it and I tune it and I'm always I've always got one in my hand there's always one in my truck it's no different than anything else the more time you spend with it the better you'll get at it and the more you'll understand the dynamics of the, the, the draw and the air and you know that kind of thing anybody else got anything Mark we all get beaten by a given turkey on a given day you got to greatly respect who you are, where you've been, and what you've done. Well, I appreciate it. And, you know, you're better than 98% of the turkey hunters will ever be in their lifetime. So the, question, <laughs> so the question is this. In a given season, when you're out there and you're able to use all your skills and all your equipment, mm -hmm and all your knowledge, what percentage of the birds that you have the opportunity to work do you not get in? <laughs> A lot more than you think. Um, I think that the, the reason we're all sitting here and the reason we all are in that show in there and the reason we all buy calls is to try to get an advantage. Um, you want to learn as much as you can. You want to um, be a better caller. You want a better call. You think that that guy down there's got the magic call, and you, hey man, I got if I get one of them, you know, man, I used to go to Walmart. I'd see old them boys on TV, uh, and I'd say, oh, I got to get me one of them. I'd go get me a Quaker boy, old boss hen. That's what Dick Kirby uses, you know. I'll be bringing them in with that. Well. You, you learn pretty quick that it's not the call and and to be honest it's not always the caller um, turkeys are gonna win I think most of the time and I wouldn't have it no other way I mean if it was easy I think we'd lose interest and be playing golf or something I think it's the passion of the, the constant um, as, a, as an old man told me one time he's, he said turkey calling is full of disappointments and occasional successes so the successes keep you coming back and keep you going but the the hunt is what it's all about and you know and I, I think that most everybody in here is not after so much the kill it's everything that leads up to the kill 
Um, you might like the, you might enjoy eating turkeys, but I guarantee you there ain't nobody in here that if they couldn't um, shoot a turkey and pick him back up and hunt him again tomorrow, that that's what he would do. Um, but I think that the fact that the turkeys win most of the time is what kind of draws us to it. And um, it, it is what it is. It's, a, it's, it's different than any other kind of hunting. I've hunted just about everything you know that in the south and um, hunted a lot of different places I've been very lucky to to hunt with people like Harold Knight and David Hale um, Chris Parrish um, Walter Parrott I mean I've hunted with some really good callers and outdoorsmen and they'll tell you the exact same thing it's it's really the getting beat and getting whipped that that draws them to go back <coughs> Mark, thank you for all the turkeys we've known. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you, uh, Mr. Bob back there has, uh, we've shared the uh, tree together many, many times. He, I, I would say Mr. Bob and I have hunted together for, I don't know, 20 years. And uh, he, I've been, I, I, I can remember his grandson, I don't know if he killed his first turkey with me, maybe his second turkey when he was seven years old and uh, Mr. Bob, his son and his grandson on the same hunt, killing three birds in one morning. And, uh, and in fact, that, that picture is hanging in Bass Pro Shop in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you ever go by there, look, you see Mr. Bob and his son and his grandson and they're holding up those three birds that we got that day. And um, yeah, I mean, that's what it's all about. And uh, it ain't just killing a turkey, it's who you kill them with and sometimes, so. And Mike here's hunted with me. Uh, he, he, he's been all over the world, but I bet you he'd tell you that some of them turkey hunts is probably as good as it gets anywhere. And where are you at, Station at? I'm in Georgetown, South Carolina, and it's between Charleston and Myrtle Beach. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, like I say, I've hunted all over, but I, I, I like to hunt around home. And uh, people say, well, have you ever killed the Grand Slam? No, but I've had every opportunity. I've, the NWTF has asked me to go to Mexico, Kansas, all over the country in pursuit of turkeys. Number one, I don't like to fly, and I, and I don't like long drives, but as David Hale told me, he said, if you want to kill a Grand Slam, you kill you five Easterns, because, you know, yeah, hey, I'm telling you, um, the Eastern wild turkey is as tough and as hard, and the terrain is more challenging as anything, and I've hunted other places, and um, I don't put down anybody's turkeys. Um, I've, and let me tell you this myth. Public land, that's a myth. They hard on public land, let me tell you. But if you hunt on a hunting club behind Sean Irish, who goes every day, that's worse than public land, I'm gonna promise you that. Because if there's anything living, that joker's done called to it, shot at it, chased it. It's, it's, I'm telling you, um, it's not always 
public land hunting that's, that's difficult. You know, we all, there's very few of us that are fortunate enough to have our own thousand acres to hunt our own turkeys. So if you shared land with anybody and they're passionate about it and they're out there every day, they're doing just as hard as it is on public land. And, and I want to be honest with you, hunting behind myself is hard because if, if I go opening day and I call up three birds and I shoot one, well, I got two really smart birds that's heard about everything I got. So, hey, it's, I got to come up with a new plan for tomorrow if I'm going to go back. And that may be changing calls. That may be calling a different way. So, um, it, you know, I, I don't want to step on nobody's toes. Public land's tough. Don't get me wrong. A lot of different things. I've seen some crazy stuff on public land, but um, don't, you know, don't don't let nobody tell you, oh, you killed that on private land, you know, because that just ain't so. Anybody got anything else? A lot of people say they don't want to go turkey hunting if they can't hear them gobble. Right. If they don't gobble, I don't want to go. Right. I personally don't feel that way. I love going one-on-one against those old You know what? Birds. Some of those old birds don't gobble much, and I've, I've had them where they don't gobble at all. And um, those are the ones that are tough because you really got to get in his bedroom, and you got to know what's going on with a bird like that. And I've hunted some, some areas that's got some pretty pretty heavy predator pressure. And I'm convinced that these areas that are like that, they don't gobble near as much. Because when a turkey gobbles, he's pulling, you know, I don't, I mean, plenty of times. He, I know he, he's gobbling and he's drawing bobcats, coyotes, everything that wants to eat him knows where he's at. They're no different than us. Bobcats and coyotes are, they're predators and they're after turkey too. They like to eat turkey as much as we do. So. You know, they. I think they learn that to keep their mouth shut, and that makes it tough, tough on us. Number one, you don't know where he's at. Number two, you don't know if he likes what you're doing. So being in the right place at the right time and knowing the land and the birds helps in that situation for sure. Anybody got anything else? What tips for calling in close? I mean, I usually almost always start my birds out. But I'm comfortable. I know they're a ways out. Mm -hmm. I know if you tie your your trumpet up, your lanyard shorter. Yeah. I picked that up on that video. Exactly. Yeah, I did a video for the NWTF. You can go on YouTube and look at it. Um, I, I this is just something that's helped me. I mean, I my goal was to only hunt with a trumpet. And I'm going to be honest with you, it's tough finishing a bird with a trumpet. Number one is you, you got your trumpet, you got to use at least one hand. And I learned to call with one hand. I keep, this is just how I do it. Now there's, there's you know, this ain't the only way. This is just what I do. I keep my gun up always is and pointed in the direction the turkey's at. If he gobbles over here and he's moving that way, I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try to keep my gun in that direction. I've been caught too many times. There ain't a whole lot of this, you know, with a turkey. Not where I'm at because it's so thick. He can go behind one tree and you'll never see him again. So what I do is I keep my gun up and, you know, and Mark Sharp, he left, but he calls with his left hand and his right hand. And so he's doing this. Well, nothing wrong with that. But to me, 
I got a lot of movement when I do this and reach up there. Well, that's a lot of movement. Even wearing gloves, and I don't, I don't like to wear gloves when I'm calling. That's another issue. But I like to call with my right hand, and I keep it close. So all I got to do, and I keep my trumpet, as you can see, I keep it up close. I don't want it hanging down here. But when you're sitting down, it basically falls in your lap with a long lanyard. I keep it close, and I, I'll call. I can drop it. It ain't hitting nothing. It don't drop far. It's just, you know, it's basically I'm just turning it loose. I can ease that hand up there. Sometimes I can call. I can get my hand over there right on the, around the, the grip of the gun, and, and I just kind of roll it like that. Just... You'll get to where you can you you can do it with very little movement. It's tough, and 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 honestly, calling a bird really close, um, heavy cover or something where he's really close, you gotta you gotta watch your calling. You got to call soft. You can't get loud on him. You got to kind of you know you got to learn to call soft. But it's also you know I think the first thing is keep your lanyard short and keep it up close. You can watch that video, they put it on, I think it's on YouTube, but um, where you can actually see the gun and you see, you know, I'm doing that. Um, it's impossible not to move some, but I kind of studied it and tried to figure out what's the least amount of movement I could do. That was going to be my second part of the question. Gloves or no gloves? Okay. Um, here's my thought. I, I used to... I, don't, I mean, I blow an owl hooter first thing in the morning, and I noticed when I wore gloves that the sound didn't go out. I mean, no doubt about it, it muffles the sound. Now, I've had people argue with me on this. A trumpet is the same way. When you call, now I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Gloves muffle it. It kind of helps you call softer if that's what you want. But I, th I do think it takes a crispness away from the calling. It takes away a little bit of the tone. Um, you might could set up a call to, you know, a higher pitch call might sound great with gloves. You know what I'm saying? But I don't wear gloves. And if I do, I wear it on my left hand. You know, it's up here. But my right hand, um, I just feel like I don't want that sound to be. It's so different than a box call putting your thumb on the side of it. Changes the sound. Uh, a pot call, you know, you hold a pot call like that, well, cup it like that and put it in your hand and you'll notice a huge difference. Trumpet's the same thing. You put a glove up there, you're, you're restricting more flow. You're actually insulating that sound. It's going into the glove and it's just diffusing it, so to speak, if that makes sense. That's just my thoughts. Now, there's some people say, I wear gloves and don't affect me a bit. That's fine. I mean, it's up to you, but that's just me. Anybody got anything else? Do you feel like there's a right or wrong way to grip the call? Like, I noticed that you are like this. So I stick my finger, get, you know, I stick my finger there and kind of cut part of the barrel off. Yeah, well, w what I do, and that that's a good question because honestly, everybody makes their calls different. Mm -hmm. Some calls have back pressure built into them, so to speak. And you don't need to do anything. I mean, I've, I've blown calls that I can, you know, I've run them like that. They do fine. Some calls need a little more back pressure. Some don't. 
My call, I mean, I can only say on my call. My call is designed, I tune it by putting that finger halfway over the hole. Now, somebody else's call might not work that way. If you really need a lot more, I know some guys that make calls and they, they put their finger inside like that. It's really what you're most comfortable with and what the call, the way the call sounds better. My calls, you know, is a more open design. I feel like I can call soft with an open design by by closing it off, or I can call louder and more aggressive, maybe raspier, with it open. Um, and I can change that by opening it and 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 letting it all out or I can bring it in like this and holding it to me. I can change the tone. You know, I mean, listen to the... You hear the tone changing. All I'm doing is just opening it. So you're not moving that finger. You still got the same. The, the finger ain't moved a bit. All I'm doing is opening this hand and closing this hand. Not so much closed, but I'm directing it more to me, which is kind of baffling it somewhat. But but that finger doesn't move. Um, it it's always there. But you know, some people, like I say, some people's call. I know I know people who swear you have to grip the call a certain way with their call and I, and I that's their call just just the way I run it what is that one made of this is cocos wood um, yeah, what about the top part the, the top part this is a material that I found um, I'm always in a quest for sound and different types of sound uh, I have a friend who's a machinist and um, he had some parts pieces laying around I get scraps from him all the time mm -hmm. And he said, here, try this. This might make a good mouthpiece part. So I noticed not, I noticed it looked like ivory to start with. And it's not exactly white. You know, ivory's not pure white. So I said, man, it kind of looks like ivory. Well, I, I cut a little piece of it. And um, you can tell a lot about um, woods. To me, there's, there's a, the Janka scale, which is hard wood, is high. Soft wood is low on the Janka scale, which is a hardness. Um, to me, I've always noticed with my style of calling and the calls, a more dense wood seems to work better for me. This is a more dense material. It's denser than ivory by a long shot. When you drop a piece of plastic or Delrin on concrete, it'll kind of sound like plastic. When you drop this stuff on concrete, it almost sounds ceramic. It has a ring to it. And I believe that that helps a whole lot in the way that, that the sound goes through it. Um, and, and, you know, hard, it makes sense to me, hard wood, hard mouthpiece. And things like acrylic. Look at an acrylic duck call. Um, duck calls for years were wood and everything. Well, they somebody, I think Butch Richenbach, made the first acrylic duck call. Big crack to it, loud, I mean, just totally different. Same thing with trumpets. I think that, that the harder, denser material, I've used acrylic a lot on mouthpieces and it works real well as well. Acrylic's a little more brittle. You could break it. This stuff here is really durable and it's 
very acrylic like <coughs> so that's just what I use and, and it, it there again matching the mouthpiece to the trumpet and the wood even to the style of calling that you do makes a big difference so I just what works for me Mark, I see every time you play the trumpet, and I see a lot of different people, they have a tendency to put it in the side of the mouth. But when you always play it, it's always usually dead center. Mm -hmm. Is there a reason for performance, or is it just a preference? I tell you my thoughts on that. I started off calling on the side, and I know people who can call like crazy on the side. But here's the thing: I have less control of my lips on the side. If I put it, put it over here, it's uh, it's it's a little bit more um, tissue, a little bit. I can't clamp down. If I was you know, if I if I was to bite down on something, I got more pressure and I got more control in the front. Over here, I'm not. I can almost go as hard as I can, and I can't even hardly feel it on my finger. You see what I'm saying? I don't have the to, the control of my lip here that I do here. That's just me. I know people that can do the uh, the opposite, but I feel like I can tighten my lips, loosen my lips hold the call get it where I want better right there that's just me there's no, there's no right or wrong way um, I can tell you what works for me but some people like it over on the side and some I've seen people run it halfway um, and some of that's just what you started off with and what you used to It is, and and it, it makes a huge difference. Um, I first started calling, I didn't use a lip stop, and I, I was doing pretty good with it. I said, well, I don't need a lip stop, and and then I started, I put a lip stop on there, and I said, well, I kind of like that. It, it gave me more consistency, because it was always in the same place, but um, Ryan and I today at the table, he came over there and he picked up two different calls and he said this one doesn't sound the same as this one and he got looking at it realized that the lip stop was I mean you couldn't hardly see the difference I mean it was a 30 second he moved it and it went to playing exactly like the other one to him and he likes his lip stop in a different place I like mine. Everybody's lips are different. Everybody likes to run the call different. So what works for one person doesn't work for another. But usually, generally, um, once you get the lip stop where you like it, you get used to running it that way. It's just like a kisser button on a bow. And, and if I move your kisser button, you ain't going to hit nothing. You know? Yeah, I'm telling you, moving the kisser button, you might as well take the sight off of it. So, but um, I think it's important that maybe, you know, you get it where you want it, but I think it's real important to, to, to always run it in the same place just because that's what you're used to. You don't want to extend it too far into your mouth, the tip. I mean, you want no, to some some people like a lot of a lot of the tip sticking out. And uh, my buddy Kerry Terrell, he runs his, and you can't hardly even see it. And I'm like, how do you even get your lip up there? I mean, but that's the way he does it. Um, it's a personal preference, you know. Some people got 
um, thicker lips and, and some people have real thin lips and I guess it's just all a, all of what you like. I, I do think that it that, that it, it hinders you on what you're able to do with the call if you're too far one way or the other. Um, but that there again there's a line that you it's a personal thing. Yeah. All right. Well, that's about all I know about anything. I hope y'all. I hope y'all enjoy the rest of the show and have a safe trip home. And y'all come see me. And we'll talk turkey some more in the booth. Well, that was a lot of good info and yeah. just really good stories. You know, again, he was just very matter of fact, very nonchalant in the whole presentation, but it's gotten me worked up to a frenzy and I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready <laughs> to go kill something. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. It, it has that effect when you listen to good Turkey hunter telling stories and stuff like that. It just, you can feed off of it, you know? <laughs> yeah. It, it, that's how that was. He, he's just, he seems like a guy I would want to share Turkey camp with, you know, full yeah. of stories calm collected seemed like he'd be easy guy to get along with and full of good stories and and info regarding the wild turkey yeah and i enjoyed his stories about the competition calling yeah you know, and and just kind of hearing him work through that timeline of hey you know you should go and compete okay yeah that sounds good and then going and competing and getting his hat handed to him the first time he competed in South Carolina and then, you know, taking a couple of years off to really study the language, really learn the intricacies of turkey talk and so on and so forth. And then going back and working his way up and actually, you know, a few years later, winning the state championship and then moving on. And, you know, to me, that's just that's fun. And I guess, you know, because I know a lot of those old school competition callers, the Chris Parrishes, the Preston Pittmans, the Eddie Salters, you know, and, and just knowing those guys and knowing that, yeah, they're competitors and yeah, they're killers. They want to go kill a turkey, but they're still a lot like Mark in the respect that one-on-one, -on -one, they're as laid back and as much like your next door neighbor as anybody. Yeah. You know, they're just ordinary guys and none of this has gotten to their heads and and for good reason i mean it's just turkey calling yeah it's not like they've gone out and won the super bowl or become president of the united states but they just love everything about the sport like you and i do cameron and 95 percent of the people who listen to this show and it just makes it fun listening to those guys and so anyway i i just i thoroughly enjoyed that seminar and hopefully mark sharp We'll get some guys lined up at Unicoi for this year to do some seminars. And the change in the format of that Unicoi custom turkey call maker show won't really change a whole lot because of COVID. So hopefully he can get that put together and we can get some more good seminars and some good information from the show this coming year. Yeah, absolutely. I hope so. I really enjoyed that one. So if there's lots of content like that, I know that's going to be another fun show. <laughs> yeah. No doubt. So, speaking of all that, I've got a favor of the week for this week. Let's hear it. 
So my favor for the week this week is to go on Facebook and type in Mark Prudum in the search bar. M-A-R-K-P-R-U-D-H-O-M-M-E. And I want you guys to tag Mark Prudum in a post that says something to the extent of, hey, just listen to the Turkey Hunter podcast episode with the Mark Prudum seminar from the 2020 Unicoi Turkey Callmaker Show and would love to hear more of Mark on the Turkey Hunter podcast. Just think, if you were Mark Prudum and four, five, 10, 15 posts showed up on your Facebook page that mentioned, hey, I would love to hear more of you on the Turkey Hunter podcast. If that showed up and then you got a phone call from Cameron or from me or a message on Facebook or Instagram from Cameron or me, you'd be pretty likely to say, yeah, man, let's do that. That'd be fun. Yeah. And Then we can pick Mark's brain a little bit more and get more stories from Mark. That'd be fun. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, Cameron, <laughs> we could trick him into running a trumpet for us. Oh, man. That would be quite the treat. Yes, indeed. So that's the favor for the week this week. I like it. I like it a lot. All right. So you want to wrap this thing up? Let's wrap it up. Okay. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. We know that you have choices. We appreciate you spending your time with us. We hope you have a wonderful week, and we look forward to seeing you again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe for free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews to help you have a more successful turkey season. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes on hunting afternoon birds, how to film your hunt, and the breeding cycle of hens, as well as some guest interviews. Thanks again for listening. We know your time is valuable, and we appreciate you sharing some of it with us. See you next week.